Who are you? If I were to ask you that question this morning, who are you, then I would like for you to attempt to fill in the blank, I am a Republican, a Democrat, an Independent, a non-voter. I am single. I am in a relationship. I am married. I am divorced. I am remarried. I am an employee. I'm an employer. I'm a student. I'm a teacher. I'm fat. I'm overweight. I'm thin. I'm in ill health. I'm in great health. I'm an athlete. I'm a couch potato. All these are descriptors that begin to define us in the world. But these are things, names and labels, that the world gives us. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter that we're going to be walking through over the next eight weeks, if you were to ask the author of the letter to Ephesians, from his prison cell in Rome in 60 A.D., as he wrote, out of his great love and affection for a small church plant in the large city of Ephesus. A church that would be a Greek province under Rome, a capital for Rome in Asia, a large port, commercial city, and the home of one of the seven wonders of the world at that time, the Temple of Artemis. Paul wrote because he wanted them to know in that very worldly city where they could be defined by the world's labels and names, he wanted them to know who you are. It's the greatest existential question. Who am I? Last week, I uh, was privileged to be invited by the McClellans to a family gathering. And uh, a family member and I began a conversation. And in that conversation, she began to, to weep. And as she took off her glasses and she began to dab her eyes, she said, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm a crier. I cry a lot these days. And I said, no. I said, I know you've just met me as a pastor, but I hope that you find me to be safe. What's behind those tears? We read that in the Scriptures that out of the heart flow the issues of life. And the channel, many times, that that heart flow can be observed are our tears. What's behind your tears? And she said, she said, I don't know who I am anymore. She said, I'm, I'm a mother and I'm a wife. She pointed out her father. She said, I'm a daughter. She said, I used to be Catholic she said, I've got friends, and I like to study, and I like to cook. She said, 
I'm a lot of things to a lot of people. But they're all poses. And many times I feel like I'll be to that person the very best of what they expect me to be. But in all of that, I feel like I'm losing the real me. She said, I don't know who I am anymore. I'm all of these things, but I don't know who I am anymore. She lives out of town, out of state. I invited her and gave her contact information, invited her to stay in touch. I would like, as a newfound friend to her, to shepherd her, to find her identity. It's worth finding. Those who diagnose borderline personality disorders say that one of the identifying marks are identity crisis. A constant coming to the point of saying, I thought this would fulfill me. I thought this was who I was, but this is not really yet who I am. I don't really know who I am. I'm so many things to so many people. I pretend and I pose and I don't really know who I am. Oh, I can say I am this, I am that, I am this, I am that, but at my core, really, who am I? A corollary question is, why am I here? What is my purpose? Paul wants this little congregation in Ephesus. He wants them to know it, not simply for information, but because of the promise to transform their life with confidence as they now are able to understand their true identity. So he doesn't speak from the world to say, Here's who you are, but he speaks from his knowledge of God's Word. He gives us Christ's words that will define us, not the world. And he says, here is your identity. You are in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 15, verses 21 through 22, concisely explains Paul's theology. Theology means knowledge of God. Paul knew the Bible, God's words. He knew God's words to man from Genesis to Revelation. He knew God's ancient words. He knew that in the beginning, man was created for fellowship with God. And all of Adam's children could trace their lineage back to Adam. But he knew that because of sin entering the world through Adam's rebellion, that we were either classified and taking our identity in Adam or through the forgiveness of our sins and being born a new creature, we take our identity in Christ. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Who am I? Paul would say, you're either in Adam, in this world, defined, looking for your identity in this world, or... You're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, that's where your identity comes from. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, 
Jesus Christ gives us an illustration of our identity with a vine and the branches that come off. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Who are you? I'm a branch if I'm in Christ. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, in other words, if you're not in Christ, you have a different identity. He's thrown away like a branch and withers. In other words, he's a branch that's not in me. He's not affiliated with me. He is not going to be fruitful, therefore, because he's not in me. Who are you? If you're a Christian, you can say with confidence, I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. What does that look like? It looks like a a huge tree with many branches, a living branch, and that branch is apart. You you can sometimes not even tell where the trunk begins and the branch begins, but I'm growing. I'm taking my identity from him. Cut me off from him, and my identity dies and withers. There's nothing to differentiate me from those branches that are not in him. They're on the ground, withered, died, and fit only for the burning. This identity is what Paul wants to communicate to the church. And he is timeless. He wants to communicate it to us. Thereby, God wants two rivers to know her identity. How are we identified? What does being in Christ look like? Now, this morning, I reserve the right to edit this message. In all likelihood, I'm only going to get through the first verse. But I want you to observe that the prerogative of a pastor is I can always go part two and I can have the second part next week. So you have to come back if I do that, if I do that. You also have, we have this fear as pastors. You have to stay alive too because I I like closure. So I don't want you, you're guaranteed to live another week so that you can get part two of this and have closure. But notice that as Paul writes this letter and he tells them that they are in Christ, in these 14 verses, he will say you're either in him or you're in Christ 11 times. John Calvin, that great reformer out of the 16th century, said this was his favorite portion of all the Bible. He preached 48 sermons in Geneva on this text. John Calvin loved the book of Ephesians. And what he loved about it was this constant unfolding of what it meant as a church, as a community, as an individual to be grafted into Christ and for Christ to be in me. That you couldn't tell the two apart. That we were so immersed in Christ. Paul saw it as important. Why is it important? Well, look at who he addresses here. And let's look at the similarities or characteristics of those that he identified as in Christ with us. 
First of all, he said, they're the saints. Verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. These three things become descriptors of those that are in Christ. First of all, they're the saints. Now, a saint, a saint is a holy man or woman. Paul, though, recognizes, as we should, that a saint being a holy person does not mean that that person in and of themselves are perfect, but that they have been declared holy. The word holy means to be separate, separated out, set aside for a specific purpose and a purpose of worship. Or purity. And so what he's saying is, is he's addressing people that they are set aside in Ephesus for God. They're set aside for the holy purpose of life, fellowship, and worship of God. In Galatians 6, 16, another letter, this one to the small church in Galatia, Paul will use another title. He will say, they are the Israel of God. So, all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He's saying those that walk, earlier he says this, those that are walking with God are the very Israel of God. Now, you might think, well, of course, they're God's people. No, they're Gentiles. In Galatia and Ephesus, the percentage were not ancient Jews or those that could chase their her- trace their heritage there, but they're, they're those that formerly worshipped idols. They haven't known a long history with God. They haven't known the stories of God, the miracles of God, the provision of God, the rule of God. But now that they have come, Paul looks at him and says, You are a saint just like the Jew. You are a child with equal rights just like the Jew. You are a saint. This this music stand right here, this music stand is saintly. It is holy. We use this music stand for worship each Sunday morning. And as far as I know, we don't carry this back and forth. Uh, It stays back in the back in storage. We only use it for worship. It's set apart for worship. But it's not perfect. It's got some black black electrical tape right here to hold it up because it, it, it stays low like this. But in worship, it serves a purpose And God looks at the music stand and says, that's a holy object, that's saintly material. So when God looks at two rivers, he says, if you're in Christ, I'm addressing holy ones. I'm addressing ones who your life is set apart and is remarkably different in relationships and in workplaces and in the schoolrooms. Your your life is different. I see you as my holy man or woman in the field. And in the city, you are set apart. You're not like everyone else. You're different and in a positive way. 
The heavens look upon you and they say, there goes a saint. There goes the Holy One of Israel. There goes my holy child. There goes a life that is set apart from every other one. Christians should never be hang-dogged and ashamed. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Man, I'm a christ in. I'm in Christ. I'm a saint. Not because I'm perfect. I am far from perfect. Far from perfect. And that makes it all the more amazing grace that He should look at me and say, you're my saint. Number two. He says... They are faithful. They're faithful in Christ Jesus. Now this raises a question. Linguists have a problem with this word here as it's used. Does it mean that these are people who are full of faith are people who are full of faithfulness? Let me explain what I mean. To be full of faith, and this is properly used here, means that intellectually, with my mind and with my heart, I both know of God and I trust Him with my mind and with my heart. I understand, I trust, I acknowledge, I confess, I believe. I believe with my head. I believe with my heart. But it's passive. It's It's a quiet faith. It's just saying he's solid. He's in Christ. He's not fickle. He's not, there's no doubt. There's no unbelief at this point. He's not struggling with that. They're just people who know their God. Or does it mean that it's people who are exhibiting what they believe? That they're exhibiting in the classroom. That they are a Christian by the way that they speak or they treat others. In relationships, that they're observed in their relationships to honor the person that they're in relationship with. To honor that relationship in purity and in peace. That in the workplace, that there's integrity and there's also encouragement and even joy. That in the community, they are observed by their acts of mercy and obedience to be faithful people. So, what is Apostle Paul, who is he addressing here? Is he saying, I'm addressing people that know and have placed their faith in Christ? Or am I addressing people that are, I'm observing that their faith is in Christ by their actions? Yes. John Stott, the Anglican rector, in his commentary on Ephesians, says, yes. It's both. Christians have not parked their brains at the door. On Sunday morning, we encourage you to bring the Bible or have a free gift of a Bible that, we will, that are out there in the foyer. Sure, if you don't have one. We encourage you. The reason that we do a little sermon outline is we encourage you to bring a pen or a pencil and to take note. Not because of anything that I say, but because God might speak in the course of the sermon and the message, His Word, to you. 
And you can contemplate that, consider that, meditate on that, ruminate on that, chew on that. We're intelligent people. We're listening. What is God saying? What is He saying to me? But we're, we're also different Monday through Saturday. We're not just Sunday-only Christians. My actions Monday through Saturday should display that I'm set apart, that I am faithful, and I am faithful in my actions. Not just on Sunday. So which is it? It's both. And that is the group that he's addressing here. He's addressing them. Now, before I go to this next one about being in Ephesians, let me tell you why this is important. There is an identity lie that the world gives you. And it says you're defined by what you do. Okay? It says you, you do these things, you achieve these things, you, you practice these things, and then that marks your identity. You are achieving your identity by what you do. You're identified by what you do. What you do defines your identity. We have heard that lie so often, we think that it's a proverb. We think that it's true. You are what you do. But it's a lie. God's Word tells us you are not defined by what you do. You're defined by who you are. Who you are determines what you do. Not what you do determines who you are. You want to scare yourself? Look and to start defining, particularly your old habits that you still see at, alive in you, and determine and ask yourself, do I really want to be known as that? You know, there's a difference in a recovery group and a redemption group. And I want you to know the difference because I want Two Rivers to be a redemption group. A recovery group, and I'm all for 12-step programs. If you struggle with addictions, get thee to a 12-step program. But I want to tell you, when I'm in a program, if I'm in a 12-step program and I'm introduced... I am Phil, and I am an alcoholic. I understand for the purposes of that recovery group, that being necessary. Because it, it, it causes you to identify with everybody in that group. You're not saying you're any better, you're not superior. You're, you're one with them, and that becomes a safe place for you. But if you've not had a drink in a long time, time and you are defining yourself and your identity as I'm an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic, you're disclaiming your redemption if you're in Christ. Two Rivers wants to be a redemption group where we say, I have been redeemed in Christ. The scriptures say here that in verse 7, in Him, it's another one of those 11, in Him, in Christ. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. 
What that means is he has paid a price, a redemption price. I want to redeem that, that pawn that I had. I want to redeem it. Well, pay the price and you can get it back. used to be mine. I pay the price. I redeem it. I get it back. Jesus Christ has paid a price. He's got you back. You are his. He looks at you and he doesn't say, there's the drunk, there's the druggie. There's the gossip. There's the lusty adulterer. He doesn't say that. But we do him. He doesn't say there's the angry man. He doesn't say there's the guy that's stealing from work or cheating on grades. He doesn't say there's the guy that is so critical of everybody behind their back. He doesn't say there's the, the woman that she just thinks that she's God's gift to earth. She's so superior and so haughty. And to ensure that we all know it, she just judges everybody around her. We do those things, but even then, by His grace, He says, I don't know you by those things. I know you because you're in Christ. So how does that change, Two Rivers? We can meet people at their very lowest and say, I don't, I don't see you that way. I see you as someone that Christ has redeemed at the price of His precious blood that washes away all sin. Past, present, and even that is to be committed. Future. I see you in Christ. What would that do to two rivers if we saw everybody in Christ? I'll tell you a trick of evangelism that I have. So if you're not a follower in Christ this morning, let me tell you one of the tricks that I'm going to try to play on you. I'm going to treat you as if you're already in Christ. It's amazing what that happens. Rather than treating you as if you're someone, some wicked person outside of Christ, I'm going to treat you and just make the assumption that you're already in Christ and minister to you just like I would a dear brother and sister. And you're going to experience such a love, such an intimacy, that if you're not in Christ, it's going to create a want and a longing because you're not going to experience that kind of safe place acceptance anywhere else. Is Two Rivers a place that you could tell your worst secret, your most horrible sin, the thing that brings you guilt and shame that you could share with another person at Two Rivers and know that you'd be safe with them? And that they will weep with you and they're going to pray for you and they're going to encourage you as one of you. As one with you. My stuff may not be your stuff, but it still stinks like your stuff. We are sinners, but He calls us saints. And He doesn't call us by our sin, therefore. He calls us in Christ. Now lastly, He addresses those that are in Christ, in Ephesus. Ephesus, as I said earlier, was a city, a port commercial city, but it was also a very idolatrous city. It was the home place of the temple of Artemis, sometimes known as Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world because all of the city revolved around the worship of Artemis. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, chapter uh, 19, in verse 23, 
on his second trip to Ephesus to visit this young, fledgling church there, hanging on in in faithfulness with head and heart and faithfulness in their walk and fellowship with Jesus Christ and in their life. In his second trip there, he was caught up in a riot. And it says that the disturbance was created because of something called the way. The way was what Christianity became identified or known as. It's a people who are journeying, following Christ. They're following Christ all the way to eternity, to heaven. They're God followers. And there's a way to follow God. Observe them. They're different. They're on a different path, a different way than everybody else. And they was creating a disturbance. Not because Christians in Ephesus were bad people. Far from it. It was because they were good people. All of a sudden, purity in relationships is flourishing. Mercy and kindness to the least of these is flourishing. Charity, forgiveness over great offenses and debts is flourishing. And it's creating a problem for the silversmith. One silversmith, Demetrius by name, he must be a head of the guild or the union, he gets them all together and he says, look, these people, they worship a different God. Now we're not in to Artemis except really for profit. But as the goddess, with this God and this people that worship him emerging, why, they could overthrow our God, our goddess. Artemis was the daughter of Zeus. If you want an interesting study, go to the Greek mythological gods and goddesses and try to identify with today the gods and the idolatrous worship and practices of the people what the gods were associated with, and then is there any resemblance today? Very interesting study. The god, goddess Artemis was the daughter of Zeus. And she is portrayed most often as wearing a, a, not a flowing dress, but a, a shorter loin dress. And she's running through a forest scene. She's a huntress. She's on the hunt. She's got a bow. She's got arrows. She's got a dog. She's got deer that accompany her because she can speak to nature. Now, she can also slay nature. She was perpetually a virgin. She was always radiantly youthful and beautiful. Young girls between the age of 5 and 10 had to go to the temple of Artemis to give at least one year service to Artemis in order to be approved, in order to be married. Women adored Artemis and worshipped her. They prayed to her for her beauty, for fertility, and for any pain or trauma they would experience at childbirth. A child is soon to be born. They would be raising lots of incense and gifts to her. Men would pray and praise her for both 
virility, for beauty, and for the success in the workplace, the hunt. Now, I don't really worry about Charleston and the worship of Artemis. I worry more about the worship of Bacchus. Bacchus is the god of wine and food. And I won't take any, time, any more time now. I'll leave it to you to tease out. But can you see in Charleston at least one of our idols being in the food and beverage business? Now, an idol, as Tim Keller defines it, is something that is good. It's good. And it's common use. But when it becomes the ultimate good in my life and begins to define me, and I put my faith and my faithfulness in that by my actions, it's become an idol. The Apostle Paul here is saying, to the church. He's saying, you have Ephesus in Christ, you Ephesians in Christ, you Charlestonians in Christ, you've got two homes. Two homes. You've got your home in Christ, but you've also got the home in this world of Charleston. And don't commit one of two errors. One era is that you only live in that home of Christ, so much so that you withdraw, you isolate yourself from the city, from the community, and from many relationships. You don't want to be tainted, and you don't want, you don't want any association with those in the world. That's an era. Paul never encourages us. God never encourages us to leave the world. He says, be salt in the world. Be light in the world. But don't be the world. That's the other area. era, is that we compartmentalize Jesus Christ so small in my identity. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but really, this is what I... Yeah, I'm a Christian. That's a part of it. But here's where I really take my identity. In other words... Don't be so preoccupied with the world around you, so preoccupied with the world around you that you withdraw from Christ. Either one of those is a mistake. And I pray, I pray that we at Two Rivers, we learn that balance so that we can be ever about the work of even redeeming society around us, being salt and being light, even as we are being redeemed that it's my very identity in Christ that allows me to live in this world and even without fear of being transformed by it, actually transform it, Christ, through me. But it's a balance. For some of us this morning, you're called more. You're called more to focus and to withdraw from the world to focus on Christ. And for some of you, you're called more to withdraw, as it were, from Christ in the sense of engaging your neighbor? Do you have relationships with those that are not followers of the way? 
Do you have relationships with those that do follow other idols, relationships that God could use you because you're in Christ in a positive way? Next week, I'm going to try to unpack three spiritual blessings, three treasures that coming to be in Christ are given to us. When you're declared to be in Christ, God gives us, through Christ and in Christ, three accompanying treasures, three spiritual blessings. One is in the past. You're chosen by God. One is in the present. You're adopted as his son or his daughter. And one is in the future. You'll be united now and forever with his heavenly family. There is a place that we're headed to. There is a place that is already promised to us. There is a place that we call our home with God the Father that we're going to. All these three are treasures that we carry that help not only to remind us, but to strengthen our identity in this world in Christ. Let's pray. A saint who is faithful in his head and his heart, obedient by faith, in Charleston. All of these things are not what we've achieved, but what you have given to us in Christ. So, Father, we set apart this table now, even as we once again set apart our life. We ask that you would find us at this moment with our head bowed to set apart our sin. And that we would say to it, you do not define me. Christ and His redemption, His forgiveness, is what I'm identified by. And having confessed and having acknowledged that forgiveness and redemption is now ours, Father, Make us hungry for this table. Make us hungry that we might be strong in our faith. That we might not be only courageous here in Charleston as your people set apart as your children identified in Christ, but we would be joyful. That this would be a table not of solemnity, but of joy. There's wine in these glasses. May we drink heartily to celebrate that we are in you that you have done it. It is finished. Lord, so we come to this table and we ask once again that you would feed us with Christ whom we identify and whom we pray in his name. Amen.